Welcome to European Talks, a podcast show brought to you by European Policy Center from Belgrade. My name is Sergio Mestorovic. I'm chairman of the European Policy Center board, and I will be your host. Today, uh, we are going to talk about the impasse in EU enlargement process and how to deal with it. We are currently witnessing uh, the new rise of the EU enlargement skepticism in Europe caused by the whole range of different challenges that the EU is currently facing. Uh, when you add to that uh, slow and uh, highly questionable reform uh, drive and uh, transformative effects in candidate countries, especially those who pretend to lead the Western Balkan Six uh, group, it is only natural to ask ourselves, isn't it a ripe time to start thinking out of the conventional enlargement box, toolbox, uh, put on the thinking hats and start imagining a more efficient method for integration of the Western Balkan Six countries into the EU. Exactly on this note, I have the pleasure to talk to dear friends and colleagues, uh, Mr. Stephen Blockmans, Director of Research at the Center for European Policy Studies from Brussels, and Milan Lazarevic, Program Director here at the European Policy Center in Belgrade. Our guests, together with Michael Emerson from CEPS and Strachina Subotic from European Policy Center, are co-authors of the latest proposal of um, stage membership or staged accession uh, process. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you. Stephen, let, let's start with you. Uh, why a new approach to EU accession process? Uh, tell us more about the broader European context in which this uh, restructuring is being proposed and why is it necessary at this particular moment? Well, I, I guess you gave the answer yourself in the introductory remarks. The, the enlargement process is stuck in a rut. One only has to look at the, the difficulties prior to the recent EU Western Balkan Summit in Brdo, where you know, it was difficult to agree on the language of the final communique, notably the question whether or not to include the words enlargement process in the text, you know, to realize how bad things have become internally divided, the, the EU is literally lost for words when trying to honor the promise of Thessaloniki made 18 years ago uh, to integrate the countries of the region. And the publication of the European Commission's enlargement package, you know, used to be a yearly highlight on the, on the political calendar. But now the country reports are received with, you know, at best a, a mix of scorn and, uh, and apathy. And meanwhile, we have seen Tensions uh, flare up again at the border between Serbia and Kosovo, despite uh, an EU-facilitated dialogue, which has rambled on for years. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, the ilk of uh, Dodik and Jovic are threatening the territorial integrity and stability of the country, which has been on, on a slow downward trajectory for years, despite or <laughs> perhaps due to the, the oversight of the, the Office of the High Representative and the presence of the European Union. So, I mean, these are just the most egregious cases. Uh, we've witnessed, of course, the backsliding uh, on, the, on the respect for the rule of law and democratic principles in, in several other countries. On the EU side, too, we've seen no real commitment of the member states to, to help implement the revised enlargement methodology, which was adopted to, to assuage concerns by notably France, the Netherlands, and also Denmark about monitoring pre-accession conditionality. 
we have seen no progress on the intention to open accession negotiations with North Macedonia and Albania, because Bulgaria blocks the process over, quite frankly, some outlandish historical linguistic claims. Um, and so uh, as enlargement, which was once called the EU's most successful foreign policy, fails to deliver, other international actors, China, Russia, Turkey, they're advancing their interests in the region and often against those espoused by the EU. So it's against this background uh, that we issued our proposal to change the accession procedure. And our template is, is therefore mainly aimed at sustaining the incentives for the states of the Western Balkans to continue their European integration journey and, and overcome an apparent impasse over accession prospects. And at the same time, our proposal aims to ease the most serious concerns that existing EU member states have over the prospect of further enlargement, notably the addition of a series of potential veto players whose democratic basis and rule of law is not yet uh, solidified. And the proposal we put on the table sets out a substantial institutional, technical and legal basis to break out of this current uh, impasse. Of course, it remains for, for political leaders in both the EU and the Western Balkans to, to signal their interest in such ideas and, and thus launch a debate at the strategic level so that the institutions can work towards defining a formal proposal. We believe that the EU's institutions could well lend themselves to the idea of staged membership with various examples of, and precedents to, to go by. Also connecting with uh, the related idea of, of differentiated integration of the European Union. But to be sure, the implementation of a system of staged accession would have to be supplemented by a robust EU policy geared towards the resolution of bilateral disputes and issues of, of statehood in the region. So a successful development, further development and practical application of our proposal uh, would, would, we think, do much to restore positive momentum to the European project itself, which is currently threatened by a damaged reputation, uh, as well as numerous internal and external threats. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Mila, Coming back to you, what are the key differences of your proposal to the ongoing accession negotiations? You are proposing introduction of four stages, stages EU accession process. Uh, give us some details. Uh, what is the reasoning uh, behind the, the novelties that you're proposing? Uh, yes, indeed, Srijan, uh, as you mentioned, uh, our template uh, is uh, proposing um, a staged um, accession process. Uh, Stephen uh, very uh, eloquently um, explained the, the the reasoning behind and the the, the uh, backdrop against uh, which uh, we are proposing this uh, this new model of um, staged accession to the EU. Uh, and basically, what our template suggests is that uh, the the current pre-accession stage um, should become, let's say, more more gradual. 
um, and that the moment of the achievement of the membership should also become more gradual in the sense that we uh, overcome or we, we, we change the current, um, the current model of uh, being an all out or and then switching to an all in uh, member, uh, member state. Uh, and in that way to actually have, let's say, two different stages of membership. Uh, basically, our model um, uh, recognizes two accession stages, um, which we call the initial and intermediate accession stages, and then two membership stages. Uh, the first one being the new member state um, uh, stage, and the last one being the conventional membership stage. Basically, each of these stages um, differs in the sense that, um, let's say, differs from the current approach in the sense that already from the beginning of the initial accession stage, um, the countries would uh, obtain certain uh, privileges, certain rights that are currently reserved only for EU membership. Um, on the other hand, um, let's say uh, 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 this graduated approach uh, allows the countries to prepare themselves um, for real, let's say for, for, for practicing real membership and to socialize themselves to socialize themselves with the EU institutions uh, throughout uh, throughout the uh, accession process and into the membership uh, phases. Um, and um, in, 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 in a way, uh, what this model is actually doing is that, as Stephen mentioned, it is uh, uh, alleviating, it, it is attempting to alleviate uh, the, the, the fears of some of the, um, especially Western Europe, European member states, from the entry into the European Union of new veto players of uh, countries which would have veto powers in the Council, of the European Union and which would be thus able to um, uh, block or to, to, to thwart some of internal EU reforms which are already being uh, uh, you know, uh, obstructed and, and made more difficult by the already uh, existing 27 um, uh, member states, each of which has veto powers in certain uh, important decisions um, for, for the future of the European Union. Uh, and considering that uh, we are aware that some of the, let's say, newer EU member states uh, of the European Union uh, have backslid in their uh, democratic standards, this is, you know, this is a justified fear uh, among those EU member states uh, that uh, allowing new unconsolidated and unproven democracies into the EU uh, might uh, end up in, uh, uh, let's say, further further reducing the uh, effectiveness and efficiency of the work of the European Union. So therefore, um, uh, our uh, third stage of uh, new member state, uh, basically, although it does represent um, uh, achievement of a membership uh, status for the newly entering countries, it does not allow them all the privileges of the EU members. But um, yeah, maybe maybe uh, we can go into more detail um, further on. Thank you, uh, Milena. Going back to you, Stephen. Milena mentioned that one of the, the main novelties introduced by your proposal in concerning an earlier access to, to certain EU membership rights and privileges uh, to the candidate countries. Uh, how would these rights differ in each of uh, these stages? It's, it's a rather complex uh, proposal. It's true, um, but bear with us. Uh, so I'll, I'll try and 
and uh, depict each of those four stages and indeed uh, the main rights, but also conditions that would be attached to, um, to this enhanced um, participation of candidate countries in the EU institutional system. So the, the system we propose um, in the two accession stages, starting with the in initial accession stage, which would require a functioning association agreement, a stabilization and association agreement uh, for the Western Balkan states, uh, a membership application uh, for uh, the EU, which has been accepted um, by, uh, by, by the Council, and um, according to a new monitoring uh, system, minimally moderate ratings for uh, the clusters of chapters and the averages within those uh, clusters that would apply um, uh, for, uh, for each of the candidate countries. With those conditions fulfilled, funding levels um, would essentially go up quite significantly already at an early stage prior to accession. Um, and they would go up to a level of 50% of uh, the ultimate uh, conventional membership uh, uh, stage. And on top of that, and Milena uh, referred to that, um, candidate countries would be engaged in policy dialogue or even gain observer status within the institutions. And so they would become part and parcel of the discussions, not just about our bilateral relationship with the EU, but much more broadly about issues pertaining to the European Union, or should I say Europe, Europe in the world even. So that, that is an important uh, addition, I think, to, to the current stage uh, status. Graduating to the intermediate accession stage, uh, funding levels would go up to 75% of conventional membership and uh, more substantial participation in the policies and institutions would be uh, gained by the candidate countries. And here we refer specifically to, to speaking rights in the council and parliament, uh, but short of voting rights. I mean, voting rights are obviously reserved for uh, member states. The condition to get to those extra uh, participation rights and, and funding levels would be a higher, uh, you know, mix of moderate to good ratings on each of the clusters monitored by uh, by the Commission, and of course, the member states under the revised um, enlargement methodology uh, at the moment, at least. Further graduation, and this is the big step, of course, from stage two to three, when uh, candidate countries become new member states, um, which would require obviously uh, good ratings on all uh, of clusters' averages would see new member states uh, gain funding levels of 100%, full participation in the policies of the European Union. Of course, I mean, there, there's a possibility to, to accede to the Schengen area and, and the Eurozone on the standard conditions that apply uh, already within the European Union. This is a level of differentiated integration, which of course um, would remain in the system. Um, but it would lead to a maximum participation in the institutions, of course, subject to, to limitations in the Council and uh, the Commission. But here, and, and Milena referred to this, um, the candidate countries could actually serve as a sort of avant-garde group uh, for further EU institutional reform, which is being discussed endlessly and has been proposed by France and Germany in particular, as far as QMV, qualified majority voting rights in the council is concerned, so as to overcome blockages that we've seen the EU um, 
from from you know uh, preventing to to uh, play its role in the world in particular, and that QMV would essentially be attributed to those rights would be attributed to candidate uh, countries. Uh, full participation in all policies and institutions um, under conventional membership or stage four um, would imply that the EU itself will have worked out solutions for the limitations in participation uh, in certain institutions in stage three. And here we refer, of course, to the Council and the Commission, um, especially as voting rights in the, uh, in the Council are concerned. Um, what we try to do with this um, with this proposal is in fact introduce institutional change uh, through the back door if you want uh, through accession of uh, new candidate countries and we can talk more about the legal um, uh, basis for that later thank you Stephen uh, coming back to to you Milana another novelty that you proposed concerns how to secure irreversibility of the reforms by developing concrete mechanism of um, sanctioning those who fail to respect their obligations in the accession process. Uh, tell us more about that. Uh, yes, uh, indeed, reversibility is a very important uh, element uh, uh, for creating uh, a credible um, enlargement policy. Um, and uh, just as much as uh, we need uh, um, incentives to move forward, to move forward with reforms uh, and to to uh, help uh, motivate uh, political leaders in the region um, to pursue the sometimes uh, painful uh, political reforms, um, just as much as we we, we need uh, uh, those incentives, we also need um, uh, let's say threats or, or in a way or at least uh, the possibility uh, of reversing uh, the rights uh, and uh, the benefits uh, obtained in the EU accession process uh, in order to sanction uh, potential backsliding. Uh, as we have already seen, uh, this is uh, possible not only here in the region, it is also possible uh, very much uh, within the European Union. Um, democracies are fragile flowers and uh, indeed uh, there needs to be, uh, there need to be checks on on, uh, on uh, how uh, these basic uh, values of the EU, EU's functioning um, are uh, upheld by its members. Uh, this means that uh, in our proposal, uh, we, are, we, we have integrated the idea of ensuring reversibility uh, throughout the process, both within uh, the four stages as well, although as only as the matter or the, 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 the the last resort, uh, the reversibility between stages. Um, why do I say that reversibility between stages is uh, something that is, you know, uh, uh, let's say um, um, the last recourse, uh, simply because in some cases, reversibility between stages would become quite, uh, let's say politically and legally uh, difficult, especially um, the, um, the reversibility between stages uh, three and two or reversibility from the stage three to the stage two uh, because it is very difficult, you know, from some from a country that has become a new member state uh, to reverse back to not being an, a member state. We have uh, seen uh, how difficult uh, how difficult that uh, that can play out um, uh, in reality. Uh, however, reversibility within stages is uh, something that um, has been, uh, let's say, um, emphasized or put as um, as uh, as the main tool uh, in this uh, in this uh, model, uh, and it would basically mean um, um, 
taking away from a country which uh, has been shown uh, through the uh, credible monitoring uh, process in a credible and uh, credible monitoring methodology to have um, backslid on some of its um, some of its obligations um, in the process that uh, some of its rights and benefits can be taken away. Uh, for example, uh, this uh, would most logically uh, pertain to um, uh, funding levels, uh, which could be decreased um, um, within stage one, or for example, so uh, for stage one, the country uh, obtains right to 50% uh, of what it would normally, 50% uh, of the funding levels through EU structural funds compared to what it would have as a full member state but uh, some of those funds could be withdrawn um, uh, because of potential backsliding, because of proven backsliding. The same would apply to, to the other stages. Uh, moreover, uh, taking away some of the voting and participation rights in the institutions is uh, another, another, of course, logical, uh, logical way to sanction uh, backsliding in, uh, in such cases. This is uh, just to, to, to give an overview, of course, and uh, you know, uh, details are all, some of the, of the details are already contained in the template and more of them will be developed in the, in the coming period. Stephen, coming back to you, uh, you, you're offering an innovative approach when it comes to adjustments of the legal basis for the purpose of um, exceeding of the candidates to certain membership rights progressively. Can you elaborate, elaborate this legal aspect of the model? Yeah, I will. Um, but if you allow me, uh, Sir John, I would just like on the issue of reversibility to, to clarify that we are absolutely not foreseeing a downgrading from stage three to two. I mean, that would amount to expulsion, which the EU treaties currently do not provide for. And so as the, as the crisis ran, the judgment of the Polish Constitutional Tribunal shows it's not evident to make the claim that Warsaw has notified its intention to withdraw from the EU uh, as, you know, as per Article 50 um invoked by by britain uh, brexit britain first so the the conundrum of this legal secession and, and the limits of um the decision making procedure under the rule of law article 7 of the eu treaty show that new and, and more nimble mechanisms have to be developed to refine the sanction procedure for backsliding member states old and in our proposal new member states so this is what, in our staged accession process, we refer to as more shades of grey within stage three, uh, so as to avoid you know, uh, the situation that Poland uh, seems to be in at this moment. But returning to, to a question about legal basis, um, there's only one provision in the treaty serving uh, for accession to the EU, that's Article 49 of the EU treaty. And, and the policy is in fact developed over the, over the past few decades through uh, commission opinions on, on the application of EU membership, strategy papers, uh, annual reports, um, um, complemented by presidency and, and council conclusions. And as such, this body of Copenhagen criteria, first formulated in 93, that body is, is grown uh, to you know, a detailed set of conditions which, uh, while remaining open for further development by the European Council in its conclusions, has been set on a firm legal basis by the Treaty of Lisbon. And so as the conditions for eligibility also covered the Union's own absorption capacity, this 
infamous uh, fourth Copenhagen criterion, which has been uh, used by member states, abused by member states to delay enlargement, um, one might assume that in legal terms, at least, any pronouncement by the European Council about the institutional adaptations needed to the EU's own modus operandi to keep the integration process on track would suffice to allow the aspirant members uh, to graduate from stage one uh, to two. And, and of course, we have council rules of procedures uh, that can be amended without triggering treaty change, uh, you know, offering speaking rights to, to third states, for example. That's a practice which has been developed already. However, the, the crucial passage, Milena referred to this, a crucial, a crucial passage from stage two to stage three for the new member states, especially given um, their access to qualified majority voting rights in the council and the right also to, to have elected MEPs with voting rights in the European Parliament, that would require treaty change. But treaty change can be uh, instrumentalized through the Treaty of Accession, which is based on Article 49 of the EU Treaty, as I mentioned, and which is hierarchically um, on par with, at least according to public international law, uh, to the constituent treaties of the EU, the founder, Lisbon Treaty, therefore. And this is the, the backdoor way that I refer to uh, through which you know, the EU institutional apparatus can in fact be changed. The Treaty of Accession provides that tool. Now then the political and legal context with a passage to stage four you know, could indeed change if there were decisions to enhance, to broaden QMV voting through regular EU treaty change. And that could lead to the reduction of the number of the members of commission, uh, which in fact is already in, uh, in the treaty, uh, Article 17, Paragraph 5, um, but effectively uh, suspended after the Irish uh, referendum. Um, but it should be clear that uh, Stage 3 is intended to be a transitional arrangement in, in support of the, of the principle of homogeneity of, uh, of EU law. And um, the, those changes in voting rules from unanimity to QMV in stage four um, could in fact, uh, if treaty change is not in the offing, already be introduced by the European Council, except for defense matters, um, by making use of a so-called passerelle clause, uh, article 48, paragraph seven of the EU treaty, and there are specific uh, articles uh, on CVSP, on the MFF, uh, on, uh, on certain worker rights, workers' rights, on, on certain areas affecting the environment. So they could be used as passerelle clauses in those specific areas. This has the advantage of obviously a much simpler procedure for the adoption of legislative acts under the ordinary legislative procedure by avoiding ratification by national parliaments uh, and indeed uh, treaty change. Um, now the, the participation of aspirant uh, members in specific policy frameworks for the, of the union uh, in, in the lower stages, stage two in particular, would in most cases only require you know, executive agreements or amendments to designated EU legal acts. And this you know, would be reminiscent of the provisions that allow for a third country participation in, in for instance, the Schengen area, which already exists. Um, or in PESCO projects where, where, where the agreement has recently been hammered out. So 
specific elements of EU legislation would would also feature, um, as for example on main funding decisions. Uh, so ultimately, a mix of these and other uh, several legal possibilities would emerge as the most feasible basis for agreement um, with indeed uh, the crucial stage jump from two to three requiring an accession treaty. Thank you, Stephen, um, especially for mentioning the passarelle. Uh, I think this is going to be very, very interesting for all the EU wonks around who are, who are listening to, to this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, Milana, uh, coming back to you and perhaps for the end, uh, uh, a question. European Commission yesterday published its regular enlargement package, including country reports on candidates' progress. Uh, your proposal is suggesting how these reports should be improved, how to improve uh, monitoring of the of the ongoing uh, reforms. How exactly do you envisage to, to improve this process? Uh, well, as I mentioned before, uh, in order to ensure a credible enlargement policy, we need both uh, working incentives and also working uh, possibilities for sanctions and reversibility. But in order for, for those to be credible, uh, and to enjoy the trust of the EU member states, which has been a problem uh, recently. It is a problem when uh, the European Commission makes recommendations and the EU member states don't accept and don't trust those recommendations. We can see that in case of, for example, Kosovo's visa liberalization and uh, in several other cases. Um, in order to, to, to fix that problem, we need a credible monitoring methodology. We need EU's reports uh, or the, the Commission's reports to become uh, credible and uh, trusted sources of information about the progress or um, uh, in, in, in certain cases, backsliding of the, of the uh, candidate countries. Um, we know that uh, at this point, and uh, we have seen that in the, in the new reports we have, which have just been uh, published, for example, the European Commission doesn't make uh, clear references of uh, any external sources or any specific methodologies that it uses in order to come up with its uh, final, um, final uh, uh, assessments of the levels of progress and preparedness of the countries. Uh, on the other hand, it does use a clear uh, scale, and uh, this year, this time around, this scale has been uh, clarified further. So um, we we know now what are the levels, but um, there there have been only external attempts, and both uh, TEPS and uh, uh, TEP with its partners in the Think for Europe network have done uh, that, that that kind of work in different ways before. Uh, we have tried to quantify um, these findings of the European Commission and uh, in some cases to, um, uh, let's say, to complement uh, the European Commission's findings with additional sources, with third-party indicators, third-party uh, credible sources of information on uh, specific areas of reforms. Now, we know that, for example, in the area of public administration reform, the European Commission, with the help of a uh, Sigma uh, of the Sigma program, uh, uh, which uh, which uh, is located at the OECD, at the Organization for European uh, for Economic Cooperation and Development, um, that uh, a very clear and quantified state of the art methodology was developed. Uh, which analyzes uh, through a set of indicators, both the quality of the legal setup, the legal framework and the 
track record of implementation of the reforms in that specific policy area, which is actually quite wide and quite horizontal. And coming up with such a, with, with such a methodology for such a complex and quite elusive policy area was for sure not an easy task. Therefore, what we are proposing is to actually make a much uh, greater use of quantification of third party indicators, but also to develop um, state of the art methodologies for uh, those most sensitive and most important areas of, um, uh, of reforms, uh, especially the fundamentals, where it is actually at this point, not often not clear what exactly countries need to do specifically in order to um, uh, fulfill the criteria for EU membership, but also it is very often not clear uh, by, the same, uh, by the same token, it is often not clear uh, whether they have actually implemented those requirements which, uh, which are expected and whether they are satisfying uh, the criteria. So by specifying uh, the methodologies for the assessment and the requirements for the countries, in these specific areas, what we would propose is to uh, move to a much more credible and trusted um, uh, method or approach to, um, to monitoring the progress of, uh, of the exceeding countries. And that would become, let's say, the basis for um, actually moving on uh, to, um, to this uh, new model of uh, um, accession in which one of, the one of the proposals which we are making is that the EU member states should only reserve um, unanimity voting in the Council and of course then uh, consensus in the European Council for major decisions, for example, moving, uh, allowing a country to move from one stage to another, but to actually restrict uh, decisions within the stages, granting specific uh, rights and, and, and moving and allowing countries, exceeding countries to move uh, uh, in the process within specific stages um, through qualified majority voting. But in order to allow for that, there needs to be trust in the findings and recommendations of the European Commission, which is why we're proposing this much more nuanced and uh, uh, quantified and uh, evidence-based approach to uh, monitoring progress. Thank you, Milena. Thank you, Stephen, uh, for this opportunity to address the e-word process that, as Stephen mentioned, is becoming a, a bad word in, in debates about the future of Europe. This should not be the case, obviously. Uh, both the EU and the candidates uh, has to rise above, above the uh, popular or populist perspective and try to remove any public concerns and fears that might hamper decision makers actually practicing their leadership in the EU integration process. Stage accession process that we talked about may be the right answer to address these fears uh, or misunderstandings and mistrust which which are currently present when we talk about the EU integration of the Western Balkans 6. Obviously as uh, uh, you both mentioned for the success uh, the the main ingredient will be a political will practice on both sides of this process. Thanks thank you once again this was a um, European Talks uh, podcast dedicated to the new proposal of stage membership proposed by a group of authors from um, Center for European Policy Studies from Brussels and European Policy Center from Belgrade. Don't forget to download your copy of the proposal that you can find on the websites of the both organizations. With this, we have finished today's podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Sergio.